Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as we get back to our seats, you can start turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you haven't been with us through this uh, journey so far through this book, it's right in the middle of your Bible, um, just about the middle of your Bible. And we're in chapter 4 today. Now, as we go into this chapter, I'm going, I have to put this out at the beginning, is that whenever we were putting this whole series together, um, all of us pastors were sort of looking at each chapter and giving it um, a summary or like a title so that we could just sort of gauge what are the topics that are going to come up throughout this series. What, what are the things that are going to be discussed? And I think it was Pastor AJ who um, at least said that we should, we should call this chapter Unhappy Business was the name that is most appropriate for this chapter, Unhappy Business. And so um, this morning... This is Unhappy Sunday at Maranatha Community Church, and I'm glad you're here for it. And if, if this sermon, if this text feels like a downer, it is not my fault. I'm just going to say that at the beginning. Because what we have today is really an extension of what started in chapter 3. Ecclesiastes, like so many books of the Bible, um, Ecclesiastes really builds on itself chapter by chapter. At times, it might seem disconnected or disjointed, but it's really not. Um, Solomon God is using Solomon to write an argument that builds on itself, and it's 12 chapters long. And so at the end of chapter 3, you'll remember after that famous poem that um, so many of us know, at the end of chapter 3, Solomon brings up two pieces of vanity. And the first is that um, all of men, uh, or that there's injustice in the courts, there's problems, and that, that, God, or that men cannot find out here what is going on with eternity, that we're creatures and it's above um, our pay grade to understand it. And then at the end of that chapter, we see the vanity, this thing that humans struggle with, recognizing the fact that like animals, we die. That like animals, we're creatures and compared to God, we're, not, we're beasts compared to him. And so that leads us to chapter four, where Surprisingly, chapter 3 ends with verse 22. We might not expect. It says, I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. And who can bring him to see what will be after him? And I think Solomon anticipates that a lot of people reading that verse or hearing that verse would want to stop and raise their hand and say, I don't quite understand how you got to this ending. How in the world does rejoice come at the end of all this? And Solomon sees that coming, and so he's smart enough to then write this next chapter where he uh, brings up even more things, even more objections that probably jump into our minds as we struggle to understand how to live in a world that is broken, as we struggle to make sense of all of these things. And so Solomon is bringing these up today because he's not afraid of answering the objections, and he's not afraid of bringing up the topics that He doesn't have to just avoid difficult questions. And so he brings up more examples of vanity and vexation and um, suffering today. And he does it because he wants to show us and he wants to show the listener and the reader that that there are these things that the wisdom of the world can't answer. That maybe the world knows to object to these things or it, it gets frustrated by these things, but it can't actually answer these things. And so that is why Solomon brings these things up, to show that the wisdom under the sun is left speechless so many times, and that the objections that we raise don't have the authority that we think that they do. 
The objections that we raise that we think, well, this proves that God isn't really governing things, that God isn't really in control, that none of this actually matters. We think that we have these arguments, these problems that dethrone God and remove his purpose, but in reality, there's no answer from under the sun. And that's why Solomon brings these things up today. So if there's one central theme for us this morning, it's that there's unhappy business under the sun and it can't be fixed from, um, by anything except wisdom from God. There's unhappy business under the sun, and it can only be fixed by wisdom from God. And so you and I are called to live by God's grace and by God's wisdom. That's what we do in response to all these things. Now, as we read this passage together, we're going to read the whole chapter. So if you're able to, uh, please stand with us as we read God's Word together, as we read Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you um, can't remain standing through the whole chapter, that's Quite all right as well. It says this Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. And better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and, striving after, and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I, depri- am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity in an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm, but how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's palace or place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat, and I'll pray for us. God, as we look into your word, we pray that you would... Give us wisdom. We pray that our eyes would be opened, our ears would be opened uh, to hear and to see your wisdom. Lord, not my own thoughts, not our own thoughts, but Lord, we want your truth to supersede our own wisdom, our own thoughts, our own reasoning. We want your truth to guide us, to lead us, and to change us. We pray that we would see your glory in this verse, in this passage today. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Solomon starts with looking at unhappy business, and he starts with the problem of oppression. That's where he goes right away. And now that word, oppression, and coupled with that word, power, if we're honest today, when we read those verses, those are loaded words for us today, right? 
When we read these words, the words oppression, when we see that written down, if you're anything like me, your mind might run in any, any number of different directions. It might run left or right or up or down, positive, negative, but we all have things that our mind may jump to because these are words that get talked about a lot in our culture today. And the danger for us whenever we're talking about um, a topic that's, that's mentioned in Scripture like this, but we live um, in, a, in a certain climate, then the problem is that whenever we read these words, it's really easy for us to read them how we just naturally read them, to sort of throw that definition that our mind jumps to, to sort of just supply it and go, okay, that's what Solomon is talking about, is this right here that we talk about today. Now, the problem is that when Solomon wrote these words, it wasn't just a placeholder for some kind of like generic idea of oppression that um, throughout every century, humanity could just make up its own definition and shove it in there and call that what God is saying. No, when Solomon wrote the words, the words have a definition. And so these words that Solomon writes this morning, whenever he talks about oppression and power, these are words that are closely related to words like violence, theft, fraud, and abuse. Violence, theft, fraud, and abuse. To give us a picture of what Solomon is likely seeing around him, um, one commenter I read talked about it this way. He said that Solomon saw debtors oppressed by a cruel creditor and a creditor oppressed by a fraudulent debtor. He saw tenants oppressed by harsh and unfair landlords and orphans by a treacherous guardian. And maybe worst of all, subjects oppressed by an arbitrary prince or an unjust judge. These are just some of the things that Solomon is looking around and seeing. And what we all look around and see, right, from time to time. We see this. We live in a world where this is a reality. And so God gives people amazing blessings. He might give some people just an insane amount of wealth, an insane amount of social influence or political power, and God gives it to them, and it's a good gift, but he gives it to them, and he gives it to them so they would bless the people that they have power over, he would, that they would bless the people that they have authority over, that they have an opportunity to bless through that wealth, through that, through that power. However, in our sin, we as humans take those gifts and we abuse them, and instead of blessing our neighbor and blessing God, we mistreat our neighbor through them, right? We see how it can be used for us and not for good. And so it's not really a question of whether or not mistreatment and abuse happens, right? Um, That's really not a question for us. The only question is really that we're left with, how are we going to respond to it? What answer are we going to give about it? And so Solomon jumps into verse 2 here, and he is giving us what I would say is um, the world's answer, the despairing answer. Because remember, he's bringing up this thing so that we would see that the world does not give us a wisdom to deal with the problem. And so in verse 2, it says this, And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Those are heavy words. Solomon's saying, according to the world, the wisdom that I can get from under heaven, it'd be better to just be dead. It'd be better to just not be around, to have never seen it. And the weight of that is real. The weight of evil and sin in the world is real, and we don't have to ignore that. And this feeling, what we have to recognize is that this feeling of despair is the feeling that the world around us is either feeling or constantly trying to get out of feeling. 
This feeling of despair is what the world is either experiencing or constantly trying to get out of. And all of our striving and all of the work that you see a fellow humans do to try to correct everything that's wrong, try to alleviate every ounce of suffering, and remove everything that could be abuse or mistreatment or oppression, that comes from a worldly place. That comes from a desire to get out from under this despair. Because... If we were left with wisdom under the sun, then we too should feel exactly like verses 2 and 3 feel. That's not a crazy conclusion to come to. If, you don't, if you're just stuck with wisdom under the sun, it's exactly where you should be. It'd be better to just not be here at all. If it's all purposeless, if it all doesn't matter, if an abuser can't be held accountable, if a thief can get away with something just in case he's strong enough or smart enough, if um, a governor can abuse a citizen... If a boss can mistreat employees just without penalty, without any accountability, then what else are you going to do but despair? And, and worse yet, if you are sitting there and you have no actual reason for why anything is wrong, if you're the world and you're sitting there with wisdom under the sun and you're not looking to God as a standard, then you're just sitting there feeling like things are wrong and feeling despairing about it. But if you don't have an actual answer for what's wrong, and if you don't have an actual standard of what righteousness would look like, and if you don't have an actual belief that there's any amount of judgment that will ever visit any of these things, then what else are you going to do but despair? Or what else are you going to do but desperately invent everything you can to get yourself or your community or something just out of that feeling of despair? And so that is the response of the world, and that's where we would be stuck if it weren't for the truth that we have. Now, in, in this text, I would say that there's not necessarily um, explicitly a faithful response, but I want to talk about what the faithful response to this problem is. So start turning, if you can, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, just probably a few pages back in your Bible, because I want to talk about what a faithful response to this looks like. The opposite of the despairing answer. And this is really, I think, um, a sentiment that Solomon would definitely support, um, but he just didn't, he wasn't um, in a place in his argument in Ecclesiastes to really include this, right? But in Psalm 73, what we have is the psalmist, we have Asaph, who's struggling in a lot of ways with this same problem that we see in Ecclesiastes 4. Asaph is sitting there and he writes this psalm because he is looking around and seeing wickedness do just fine and nobody get what they deserve. And he's wondering if everything he's doing is in vain. And so this faithful response that we can have, the way out of despair that we can have, it starts with remembering God. Well, read in verse 1 of Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, and they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. He goes on for the next several verses to say those same things over again. The wicked are doing just fine. But if we skip down to verse 16, it says this, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Verse 18, truly you set them in slippery places. 
you make them fall to ruin, how they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. What the psalmist remembers is what we have to remember, that a sovereign God means that you and I are not stuck in despair. We are not stuck in verse 3. We have a God who will judge sin. We have a God who will remove sin. And we have a God that even today is at work in the creation that he made. Even today, his kingdom is at work making every enemy a footstool for his feet. And what's amazing is that the reality of this judgment wouldn't be anything but just a different type of despair for us if it wasn't for the grace we've been shown. Because this morning, if all we had, if all I could tell you is like, oh, good news that there is judgment for evil, the problem with that is that all of us would deserve that same judgment. That's the problem. So we would, yeah, we'd be out of the despair of everything being meaningless, but we wouldn't be out of the despair of judgment that now, oh, we get to take part in as well. So the good news for us is that even though God's judgment is real and we can depend on it and we can depend on the fact that he will judge sin, we can also depend on the fact that his grace is real. And so you and I today, we can sit here and we can look at the cross and we can remember that on that day, everything that's wrong will be made right. Everything that's wrong will be made right. And we will get to enjoy that instead of be judged in it. Even though you and I, just like we could list off all these people, we could point to them and say they're oppressors, they're wrong, they're sinful, they're evil, they're wicked. You and I deserve all of that, but the good news is that through Christ on the cross, we can enjoy freedom and grace from all of that sin that we deserve to be judged for. And we get counted righteous instead of sinful, instead of deserving of wrath. So if you're not in Christ today, if you don't believe him, if you don't trust in his payment and your place on the cross, if you haven't submitted yourself to him, followed him as Lord, then the bad news is is that you are still in despair today. And it might be sort of blocked from your mind because we have lots of things that we use to keep us from thinking that way and lots of um, clever little devices we may use to get out of it. But the reality is that without Christ, we would still be in despair. So this morning, come to Jesus. Accept him. He is the only way from this despair. And in him, you have grace and you have truth and wisdom to live by. From here, this text might seem like it takes a hard right turn, and the next verses might not seem like they have anything to do uh, with what we just read. Um, I know that from the first time I was reading through it, it felt like we just wandered into the book of Proverbs all of a sudden, because that's what it reads like. Um, But there is a common thread that connects these two ideas. I think that um, Solomon brings up this next example of vanity and unhappy business, if you will. He brings it up to show the vices and the temptations that we are tempted with as a result of the brokenness of the world that we live in. And so we'll read here um, just in verse 4 and 5. Then I saw all the toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. What Solomon presents to us here are really two, two sides of a bad coin. That this is kind of a response that we as humans can have to this um, top-down, maybe, mistreatment that we see in the world around us. Because the reality is that oppression and mistreatment is not just top-down. It's, it's not. That mistreatment of neighbor is not always top-down. 
So Solomon digs into the problem of envy, and he uses an exaggeration here. I don't think that Solomon really believes that absolutely everything that's ever done in the whole world is purely done out of envy for somebody else's good things. However, I think he is trying to make his point that a whole lot of what is done is done out of envy and done out of jealousy and coveting. Because our world today runs on envy. It is in our politics. It is in our classrooms. It is in our families that we were raised in. It is in um, our workplaces. It's everywhere. We run on envy today. And we need to stop and wonder how much of our own activity day to day is actually motivated by a jealousy, by a coveting, by an enviousness of our neighbor. Because it's a poison. It really is. There is nothing quite so poisonous as envy. And if we want to not be enslaved, then we need to get in the habit of hating envy wherever it pops up in our lives. Wherever it pops up, we need to hate it. Because if we don't, we'll turn into what Solomon mentions in verse 7, which we'll get to in a second. But before that, Solomon then says, okay, maybe you look at all this evil and then you get motivated by envy to work really hard and get ahead. But maybe you look at all these problems and you say, well, if it's broken and if it's rigged and if I can't get promised like a fair shake or if I can't get promised an easy life, then why don't I just do nothing? Why don't I just fold my hands and be lazy? Now, the problem with that is obviously we were made to work, that God made us to be productive and to be fruitful. And in that productivity and in that work, we would serve our neighbors and honor him. And also on top of that, the problem is that if we are able to work, but we're just unwilling we're actually mistreating our neighbor. If we're able to work, but we're just unwilling, then what we're doing is we're requiring our neighbor to do work for us, which is just envy by a different name. It's just sin by a different name. And so instead of these two extremes, Solomon says that we can have contentment and that it's better in verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. And that word quietness means like this contentment, this peace, this stillness of spirit that we can have when we are obedient and faithful to God, when we work hard, but we are also not grasping at more than we need. Because we have to believe that it's godliness with contentment is great gain, right? We believe that verse, and it's better than all the things that I'm currently envying and coveting. That godliness with contentment is better than all of those things that I want so bad. And because because we have God and we have his grace and his wisdom, we're actually enabled to be content. Without those things, without God, without his wisdom and his grace, we wouldn't be content. We couldn't be content. Now, if we reject those things, if we're not content, then we can turn out like verse 7, as it says that he saw vanity under the sun... One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? Again, that's vanity and an unhappy business. I mean, we can probably point to some people we know in life that maybe fit this bill a little bit. Um, Sadly, at times, maybe some of us fit this bill and maybe... Sadly, right now, we should look ourselves in the mirror and say that this does fit us right now. That this um, turned in by greed, we can become deceived by greed to such an extent that we're just not able to stop. We're not able 
to stop attaining, to stop trying, to stop working, to stop trying to gather. And we get sucked into all of the attaining of all the world's prizes and promises, and they're so um, deceiving that we never even stop to ask why we're doing it. Because sin is never going to tell you to stop and consider what you're doing. Sin, greed is never going to tell you to stop and take a minute and think if you really want to do this. Never going to tell you to do that, right? Because if we thought clearly for even a moment, we'd say, oh, this is worthless. So we have to just keep going and keep striving and stay on the treadmill all the time. And we can't stop for anything that would um, impinge on any of our freedom or our dreams or our wallets. We can't stop for anything that would get in the way of that. And the more that we want, um, it's amazing that Solomon uses this language. It's so much like chapter 1. If you remember, in chapter 1 it says the eye is not filled with seeing and the ear is not filled with hearing. And he kind of uses similar language here in chapter 4. What's amazing is that the more that we have, the more we often want, right? The more that we achieve, the more we often want to achieve. And instead of being freed um, from this greed, what happens is that we actually, through God's grace, can be given a chance to enjoy gifts from him and not be consumed by them. And that's what Solomon jumps into, this example of the gift of friendship and companionship in verse 9. See, look at all these things that Solomon lays out as gifts in verse 9 through 12. He says that two are better than one, and he seeks to prove that thing, that this is more fulfilling than the attaining that we just talked about in verse 7. He says that two will get a better reward for their toil, that co-workers in our lives, co-workers in the work of God, will bring more fruit than us just doing everything by ourselves. He goes on to say that there's support when you fall and when you fail. He goes on to say as well that encouragement and comfort that we can keep warm, so to speak, by the presence of another. I mean, we all understand physically how that works, but emotionally and spiritually it's the same way. That encouragement and comfort is there for us through the gift of fellowship and friendship. Lastly, it says that there's protection and accountability and strength with this gift, and that God himself blesses this unity as well and makes it stronger, that we're not quickly broken. All of these things come to us through friendship, uh, fellowship, and companionship. So when we're freed by Christ from this drive to attain, this drive to get more and gather more, then we actually can live lives of fruitful uh, friendship because we no longer see people as objects to get what we want, and we no longer just have objects that we want that displace all the people. But instead, we're freed up to actually be selfless and to see real joy and contentment come from that. So one of the last things that Solomon jumps into here, and he knows this better than we ever will, is political power. See, he says in Proverbs 27 um, that Riches don't last forever, and neither does a crown, neither does a throne. And so that's what he jumps into in this last section. And that's what we'll pick up in verse 13. As he talks about this poor and wise youth, as opposed to the foolish king. He says, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Now he goes on to say how this young king is raised up because of his wisdom and because of 
the blessing of God and also because of the foolishness of the king. He takes his place. However, he may rule perfectly well and wisely and honorably, but one day he's going to be replaced and he has no idea by whom. And so all the people that he will reign over will one day get reigned over by somebody else. And who can tell if that person will be wise? So whether it's fame or it's social power or it's political power, it's still just vapor. And even all those people who know his name today, it says that they will rejoice. Um, They will not rejoice in him later. Those who come later won't even know his name anymore. There will be somebody else to follow and to love and rejoice in. So just as soon as you're given the throne, it goes to somebody else. And this um, personal, by way of application for us, might be hard to figure out. But the first thing I would stop us at is in verse 3. That it would be better to be poor and wise than rich, famous, and foolish. It would be better for us to be poor and wise than rich, famous, and foolish. And to forget how to take correction. Yet how many of us can't take correction now? Now, on a political level, I don't think anyone here is about to be a king or a queen or a prince, Um, and I don't think anybody here is about to become president, although maybe, um, we'll see. But, so we might not be tempted by taking too much security in our throne that we have, right? Because most of us don't have one. If you do have one, please tell me. That'd be good to know. But... How much of us take security in the fact that maybe we're not on the throne, but the guys that we like are on the throne? We're not on the throne, but the people that we vote for and support are the ones that seem to run the show. And we get a lot of security from that. And you can tell, because whenever they're not in control anymore, you can see how insecure we are, how frustrated we get, how fearful we are. And maybe we need to stop especially in the climate that we live in, because this is what it's, um, I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm 28 years old, so maybe this is what it was like a long time ago too, but it feels like that insecurity is like an all-time high for all kinds of people, that we want so desperately to, by proxy, be in control of things. However, when we remember God, when we remember his wisdom, when we remember his grace, then you and I can be freed up from all of this desperate striving for riches and for power and for peace and for comfort. Because you and I do not need an earthly and temporary king to give us ease and peace. We have one who is better. And you and I have an eternal king who has an eternal kingdom And that eternal kingdom has started ruling today. It started ruling thousands of years ago. And that king is making all enemies a footstool for his feet. And so that in the end, there won't be any more oppression. There won't be any more sin. There won't be any more unhappy business left. It will be gone. And through his grace, we're brought into that kingdom to enjoy it. And so you and I ought to be way more secure then maybe we are sometimes. And I think in response to all this that we read in this chapter, I think it's pretty um, simple. At least the uh, idea is short. We can refuse despair, right? We can refuse despair because it does not make sense for us. To, to be hopeless as a Christian, it does not make sense for you. 
And instead of living according to wisdom under the sun that can't fix anything, we can live in this world around us that is stained with sin, that will have trials and problems. We can live in this world by God's grace and in his wisdom. And in that, we will experience his blessing. He will not prove anything other than faithful to us. Let's pray together. Father, you are a good father to us, and you hear our prayer, and we thank you for that. We thank you that we can look at the world around us and have peace, knowing that you have overcome it. We can know that you will judge sin, and you will set creation and us free from the presence, from the power of sin. And so this morning, Lord, we ask that we would respond to your word in humility and obedience and in faithfulness. And we would be examples to the world around us um, of what it looks like to have hope, to have answers, to have wisdom. We pray all these things in Christ's name who set us free. Amen.